Well, I'm going to have a little bit of a look at the Word of God today, so I'm going to open up my Bible, and if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Psalm, chapter 28. I'm going to read the whole of this psalm. I want to have a look in particular today about the state of the world, the world situation and the problems and the difficulties are there, but also, of course, as we always do, and that is to give an answer. You know, whenever God spoke of uh, troubles and strife in the world, it doesn't matter what time you look through the scriptures or what place you look, you find that God has always provided a way of escape, an answer to get out of the trouble or the difficulty or the predicament. A reading here in Psalm 28, which is a psalm of King David of Israel, and he wrote many of the psalms and wonderfully inspired by God. We read here, Unto thee will I cry, David writes, O Lord my rock. And of course that's a, a wonderful establishing point. That God is the rock of our salvation. He is a solid foundation, the Bible says, that will never ever be moved. And a foundation that's referred to again in the book of Corinthians, that Jesus Christ in the New Testament is the rock of our salvation. That solid, sure foundation of what we believe in and what we trust in. So he goes on to say, and be not silent unto me. If thou will be silent unto me, I will become like them that go down to the pit. So he said, if I don't hear from your father, then I know that uh, I've got nothing left in life. I'll just end up in the grave. He says, hear the voice of my supplications or my petitions when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands towards my holy oracle, my holy God, one that knows everything. And draw not me not away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity which speak peace to their neighbours, but mischief is in their hearts. You know, there's so much of that going on in the world where people say one thing, but in their hearts there's evil and, and evil doings. It says, give unto them according to their deeds, David writes, according to the wickedness of their endeavour. Give them after the work of their hands and render to them their desert. Because they regard not the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands, he shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications, and the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusteth in him, and I am helped, and wherefore my heart greatly rejoiceth, and with my song I will praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving strength of his anointed. Save thy people, and bless thine inheritance, feed them also, and lift them up forever. And David was talking firstly about his own salvation, his own relationship with his God, and how sure he was of the God that he worshipped and loved. But he also knew that that God was for everyone that would just listen and hearken unto his voice. And so he's talking here against God not only being available for everyone, but God is against them that do wrong. But for them that do right, he's a rock and he's a salvation and he's so steadfast and unmovable. We go to the next uh, chapter and uh, Psalm, Psalm 27. I just want to refer to one verse here. When it says in verse 7, it says, uh, The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The Lord, it tells us here, the voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The word divideth in the Hebrew means 
he cutteth out the flames of fire. God is so great that he's able to change things that we might have opposing us even to the point of destroying us. He goes on to say that the voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness and the Lord shaketh the wilderness of, of Kadesh. So the Lord is there and he's watching over everything. He knows all that's there. And in verse uh, chapter, or the Psalm 30, another couple of verses, it says, Sing unto the Lord, O ye his saints of his, and give thanks to, at the remembrance of his holiness, for his anger en- endureth not a moment, oh, but a moment, and in his flavour is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning, and in my, my prosperity I shall never be moved. So David was talking about the wonderful ability to cry out to God, to know that he promised to heal, to set free and to meet every need, he was there to preserve him. He was there to prevent him from the pit or from the grave. And so that's why he wanted to sing, sing songs and praise unto God. He wanted to give thanks unto God and it's all because he remembered the holiness of his God. And so we see this wonderful little introduction unto who the God is and how great is our God and how greatly he should be praised. So if we could have the slides now for a moment, we have a few slides as well here today. I want to have a look at the world. On one hand, you've got a person like David that loved and believed in God. On the other hand, there are those that oppose God and and, and withstand God and don't want to have anything to do with him. Back 2,000 years ago, the Lord was uh, sitting on the Mount of Olives. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24. And they came to him privately because they wanted to ask him a certain questions about the future. And they said to him about not only that time in which they lived, but what about the future and what's going to happen, even uh, talking to the, the very end of the ages. And one of the things that Jesus said for then shall be great tribulation, as was such as was not since the beginning of the world, nor to this time, nor indeed ever shall be. And so he talked about a time in which the world was going to be in tribulation. And we'll explain a little bit more about what that means, because we are living in the time of tribulation that's upon the face of the earth without any doubt at all. Over the last few months, we've been greatly affected all over the world because of the pandemic of the COVID-19 virus. And it's just amazing to really think about it for a moment, that to even know that there was a virus, man had to build a microscope called the electron microscope that was so powerful that it was able to amplify and to show things that it was so small inside. Uh, in size, I should say, that they're virtually invisible to the human eye. And that little virus that we cannot see has created havoc in the whole of this world at the moment. We're still being influenced by it because of the restrictions that are upon us. We're trying to uh, uh, curb 
the effect of this virus by keeping it out of our country, keep it out of our state in the moment of South Australia. But the reality is, it's not just keeping that virus at bay, but what is it costing? To Australia, I read a newspaper article only a day or so ago, it's going to cost the moment Australia around $279 billion in loss of national income. And even though there might be no further action, there's still a cost of something like $127 billion that's going to cost this country. So what does that mean? That means that our world is in a state, in a mess, and they don't know what it is that they're going to be able to do to rectify it. You know, the problem is that people don't believe in their God because God is the answer to every situation to overcome all the effects of things like a virus that cannot even be seen. So the world is in a a real mess, as we're saying, and in the last couple of weeks we've seen the terrible consequences of one man dying over in America. And that man died, lost his life, because a police officer put his knee upon his neck for something like eight and a half minutes until he was dead. And the man is crying out, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And the consequences of that, because it was all recorded, are that it threw America into an absolute uh, pandemonium. We see the situation where there was a rise up in the streets of the uh, effect of people revolting, really revolting against authority, against the police, against injustice, against uh, discrimination of races and against so many things. And, uh, you know, to turn on our televisions at night and see the horrid things that are actually really happening here in the world. And the problem is with people, they don't understand that you don't put out a fire with a bucket of petrol. You put out the fire with water. And some of them have just been fueling the fire. And they kept it going on and on and on because they didn't want peace. They didn't want harmony in the world. And so they poured out the bucket of petrol. That was until the brother of George Floyd, Terence Floyd, was able to go and stand at the spot where his brother was murdered and hold up the megaphone there as we see him here, that little caption, I can't breathe, that become a very well-known statement. And he cried out to the American people to stop the violence that was happening not just in Minneapolis but happening in many other cities around America. And people were looting, robbing, bashing, doing all manner of things. And he stood up there and said, my family is a peaceable family. He says, and my family is a God-fearing family. And so this man, Terence Floyd, wanted to stand up for the truth that was really there all the time. He wanted to pour water and not fire upon the fueling that was going on at that particular time. And then we find that it got through to many people all over America. 
And I think most of us were very moved to see that a time came when the, the chief of, of police came out and he removed his helmet. He put it on the ground and he knelt down and he prayed with the protesters. He put himself at risk of his life because by taking off his helmet, the protesters could have attacked him and killed him. But he knew himself that the peace had to come from within. And so he built, knelt down and even the governors in some places knelt down and they prayed for peace. They laid hands on the protesters in the sense that they want to pray with them. And so there were, in a very moving way, that simple event on top of Terence Holmes was able to quell the nation of their violence and it started to go away. And it was a wonderful thing to see that there is an ability to get peace in this situation. But then comes out the man that is so sure of himself. The President of the United States of America says, the people that do wrong, we should use our force and we should, uh, you know, really show them what it's all about. They should do what they're told. And even walk to a little church near what the White House St. John's Church. And there he stood in front of it because there'd been a fire in part of the building. And he held up the Bible. More or less to say, well, this book's important. But like, of course, typical politicians, the leader of the opposition, Joe, Joe Biden, turned around and he said, it's all very well. For Donald Trump to hold up the Bible, but why doesn't he open up the book and read the pages that are inside it to know the truth? And that's the tragedy of it all. That rather than being interested in his own opinion, he should be interested in doing what was right in the eyes of God and the eyes of God that God wants peace. God has promised peace to the individual in a way of salvation, we'll talk about in a moment, but he wants peace amongst the people in general. So we're going to have a look for a few moments about this aspect of the great uh, tribulation that's taking place in the world at the moment, but it's not new. It's been going for nearly 2,000 years. And at the time he was talking to the disciples, On the Mount of Olives, Jesus said, and they're his words, so they're important words, the Son of God. He says, that then shall be great tribulation, such was as not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. He talked from a time shortly after that the world will be in great tribulation. In verse 22 it says, and except those days be shortened, will cut short. This tribulation is going to go on to the point that no flesh will be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. The elect means the elect of God, the true born-again Christians. He's going to come and stop the destruction of this world before man destroys the whole of it. If you look up the meaning of the word tribulation, it means principally pressure. 
And that's what we saw happen in America. It means a great trouble or a severe trial. It means persecution. It means affliction or oppression. So we are living in such a time that Jesus spoke of nearly 2,000 years ago. In Matthew and Mark chapter 13 and verse 19, it uses the word affliction. For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. In verse 20 it says, And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh shall be, should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he has shortened the days. He's not going to allow man to destroy totally this world. The Bible says we are living in a world without end. But we're going to live in a world in the future that there is a king of kings ruling over it. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the word here he talked about is affliction, which means again pressure, afflicted, anguish, burden, persecution, tribulation or trouble is the meaning of the word affliction. It's all describing exactly the same thing here in the book of Mark. In the book of of Luke and chapter 21, another wonderful chapter on the, the second coming of the Lord, he says from those these days of vengeance that all things are written may be fulfilled. He says, Woe unto them that are with child and them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land, he's talking in the land of Israel, and wrath upon his people. And they, the Jews, shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they'll be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem itself is going to be trodden down and ruled over by Gentile nations until ultimately the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. And it was fulfilled exactly to the year of the seven times punishment in 1917 AD when the Lord Allenby of Megiddo walked into Jerusalem and gave it back to the Jews as a national hope, a national home that they haven't had for 2,520 years. And yet, even though they're back there, there is still trouble. And Israel and Jerusalem, Jerusalem's described in the last days as a cup of trembling and a festering sore. And that's the way it is. But Luke talks about distress. And distress means constraint or needfulness of something else. This is the world in which we live and things are not going to change fully until Jesus Christ comes back again. So if we could have the, that off and the lights back on again. Thank you, Neville. When we're studying the Bible, it's important to understand that to study the Bible, whether you're looking at prophecy or whether you're looking at salvation, it's like building a home or a house somewhere or a building. Simply because to build, you start with a foundation. You need to go back to a point where the foundation is ready to take the building. And one starts when you're going to build a building to remove all the rubbish and all the debris over that area. 
so that you might have a clear area and the solidness ready for the foundation. The problem is today, even spiritually, is that people are trying to build on what is already there. They're trying to build, as it indicates, on another man's foundation with the various ideas and teachings that go back to the teachings of their organisation or their basic beliefs rather than going back to a solid foundation or the rock that is Jesus Christ in the New Testament, that sure foundation. You see, even on the way of salvation, the Bible tells us very clearly when a religious man in John chapter 3 spoke to Jesus by night because he is fearful of other Pharisees, religious people seeing him talk to Jesus. And when he acknowledged and said, look, we know you must be a teacher come from God because no man could do the miracles you do except that God be with that man. And Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, I'm not worried about compliments. I'm even worried about you. He said, unless you, Nicodemus, get back to the foundation and you're born again of water and the Spirit, he said, you're not going to see and you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't understand that. He said, how can you be born when you're old? Can you enter the second time in your mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel, don't be surprised, but I'm telling you, get back to basics. You must be born again. And despite the fact he was a religious Jew and followed the Jewish teachings, he said, you're not ready to meet your creator until the day you're born again. And we thank God that the basis of our fellowship is John chapter 3, that we believe that everyone regardless of their background of belief or non-belief, needs to come to the point where they're saying, Lord, I want to do it your way, not my way. And so they forsake their thoughts and they forsake their ways and they get baptised and they get filled with the Holy Spirit. They know that because as the Bible says, as you heard today, you speak in a new tongue as the Spirit of God gives utterance because God is a spirit and not a man. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the truth of the basics of salvation that we're talking about of being born again. Well, what do the churches do today? Building on their old debris and rubble. They sprinkle babies. In fact, I sent a picture the other day I thought was quite amusing because of the COVID-19 that had a picture of a priest and a lady holding up her little baby that was going to be sprinkled, not baptised by immersion, no repentance at all, and the priest was back there with a water pistol to water its forehead. I mean, how ridiculous can you get? But that's the way of man. They have their confirmation classes, and a man declares when he lays hand on them, you have received the Holy Spirit when nothing happens. You know, we could go into so many things. People are baptised under a flag and not in water. Others are told, oh, just believe and you'll be saved. It's in like manner 
that this great tribulation is upon the world in so many ways. And we have to clear the grounds with all of the false and misleading and deceptive doctrines at all. You know, it's not the concept, and that's why I want to bring out the, the idea of, of the Great Tribulation, it's not the concept that's being preached by many called the futurists. There are so many people in the world today that are told that in the future there's going to come a time when people are going to suddenly disappear for three and a half to seven years at the end of the age. And then when that happens, it's going to be the secret rapture of the Christians. And the Antichrist will then rise up. And the Antichrist will make a pact with the Jews. Three and a half years he breaks it and so on. And they give this nightmarish uh, picture of a horrific event of un- on unprecedented scale where death and martyrdom and famines and plagues and natural disasters take place. These things are already happening on the world. You don't have to wait for the future for that to happen. And there's no man that's going to rise up to do that in the Bible. You see, when Jesus Christ comes, the Bible says, every eye will look up and see him. The Bible says that even though that pierced his side will look up and see him, they that pierced him will be raised up to see who it was that they, they, they did this to, 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 I should say. When these things are happening, the way that they're describing it, they're taking away from the truth of the word of God. And of course, it's not also the area or the uh, time known as the judgment of the nations or the day of vengeance of God when he pours out his wrath upon the uh, the heathen or the, the unbeliever. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, it says, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. There's only one second coming of Christ, not to take people away quietly for seven years, but to show everyone on the earth who he really is and to judge mankind as a result. You see, the idea of the people of this world is that they think there's a period called the rapture and it's not the teachings of God. The abomination of desolations referred to in the book of Daniel chapter 9 that they they use as their proof happened nearly 2,000 years ago in AD 27. Because as we read from Matthew chapter 24 that the Lord was sitting down and explaining everything that was going to happen. And he said, one of the first things I want to warn you is when this abomination of desolation takes place, get out of Jerusalem. You're on top of the roof, don't move. You're in the field, run away. And so on. Simply because he was warning them that there was going to be a time in which the land of Israel and Jerusalem was going to be attacked. Why was it attacked? Because the Jews cursed themselves. The Jews said when they crucified Jesus on the cross, let his blood be upon us and upon our children and upon our children's children. They didn't care about this Jesus Christ. We don't want this man 
to rule over us, they say. What was the result of it? One million Jews were killed at the time when Titus the Roman ransacked Jerusalem. The Christians had all left. The true Christians had already left. But to commemorate it, when they went back to Rome, they actually built an ark just outside of the Colosseum called the Ark of Titus. Titus was the man, the emperor's son, that ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed it. Around 81 to 85, they built this commemoration to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem and destroying of the Jewish delegates. And in the, the building itself the, of the actual arch is embedded, showing the Roman soldiers taking away even the golden candlestick and the Jews captive and destroying their things. AD 70 was a very significant year because that's when the Great Tribulation commenced. That's when the, the Jews were tried and they, of course, were overcome. But the Tribulation has gone from that moment right through history, particularly the persecution during the Dark Ages by the Roman Catholic system of Christians. You see, Jesus Christ said these things would happen and worse things were going to happen. And he also said that one time will come in history in which he will intervene and he will cut short the days for the elect's sake. He's going to stop the destruction of the world so that the saints are able to rule and reign on this world with him. Jesus said unless he intervenes in person to end the tribulation, no flesh would survive a life. But man today, we know, has that ability. He has that ability to destroy the world by uh, a nuclear warfare. We know that tribulation would be ended by his literal, personal, visible return to the earth. And that's what's going to happen according to the word of God. He's going to come in with power and with great glory. He didn't return in AD 70. That was just the beginning. And the great tribulation has been continuing, as I've mentioned, throughout all of the centuries. The end will be marked with the literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ to save from the world from destruction. And we have in the meantime all the signs that Jesus said would happen. He talked about famines and earthquakes and pestilences, unusual plagues or diseases like COVID-19 that are still with us at the moment. We are still in the time of tribulation. I want to have a look at, just for a moment, of the place that belongs to those that belong to Christ. Let's have a look in First Thessalonians in chapter 4. First Thessalonians in chapter 4. Just going to read part of it. It's a story that most of us know well. But giving the thought here, it says, For the Lord himself, in verse 16 of chapter 4, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of the trumpet of God, 
and the very dead in Christ will be the first to rise up to meet Jesus in the air. Then he says, then we which are alive, if we happen to be alive on that day, and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. So that wonderful event at the end of the tribulation is when Jesus comes through the cloud. The dead in Christ rise up. Those that are living and remain rise up together with them and they meet Jesus in the air, ever to be with Christ, forever. That's why we comfort when we read of these things in the word of God. And we go on to read in verse uh, 1 of the next chapter, in chapter 5. It says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, Paul says, you have no need that I write unto you, he says to the church, a spirit-filled church. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, as the world is crying out for at the moment, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travaileth upon a woman with child, having a a determination time of a pregnancy, and they shall not escape. It's going to happen. There's no two ways about it. And it goes on, but you, brethren, he's talking to spirit-filled people in the church that have built on that foundation of Christ being born again of water and the Spirit. You're not in darkness as that that day should overtake you as a thief or unexpectedly. For you're all children of the light and children of the day, and we are not of the night and nor of the darkness. And let us not sleep. In other words, be, be slack as others are slack, but be watchful and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken, are drunken in the night. The works of wickedness go on night and day. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we awake or asleep, and the word sleep is interchangeable for the word death at this time. So it doesn't say we die, we, we go to sleep. So the dead or the alive, we shall live together with him, with Christ. And wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you do, also you do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labour in the work and so on. So we won't go on to that. But to the apostle, Paul writing to the church at Thessaloniki, the day of the Lord was something that was real and was going to come and he didn't know when. He may have even expected because of the state of the world in his mind at that time, it could have happened in his lifetime. The suddenness of the event, though, is an assurance that Jesus Christ has made. The world spends its time, in general, in careless indifference and in sensual enjoyment, in drunkenness and revelings and so on. But the spiritual Christian is encouraged to be a soldier, to be watchful, to be ready at any time. 
or anything that the Lord might put before them that they can handle and go through or be able to tell others of the great love that they have through Jesus Christ. And I just want to finish by looking this thought a little further and go over to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation, book of Revelation chapter 7. So I just want to make it clear again. The great tribulation is not in the future, as the futurists tell us. The great tribulation started in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Christians and the destruction of the Jews. They brought it upon themselves by cursing Jesus Christ. Let his blood be upon us. It started in AD 27, uh, AD 70, I should say, and it's happening today. But it'll stop one day when Jesus comes through the clouds. If we read chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, which we're not going to because of time, we would have read about the fact that when the great Roman Empire was uh, lost its power and, and lost its effectiveness to the point that it was at death, that they thought maybe this is when the Lord's coming back. And he says, not time yet. Wait a little more, there's more to come into the kingdom of God. For the time will come. And chapter 7 is the time in which it describes two representations of the second coming. The first in type, representing the 144,000, which we won't go into now, which is a a type of the completed church, 12 times 12,000, the perfect government that will rule with Christ. But after that, the New Testament illustration that happened from the time of Christ is what we want to read about here. We'll start reading in in, uh, verse 9. He said, And after the 144,000 that were sealed, I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of nations and kindreds and people and tongues. So all the, the nations of the world are involved here. It says they stood before the Lamb, uh, the throne, the throne of God and before the Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ. But this time they're all clothed with white robes and they have palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb, the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world, as we're going to be thinking about in a moment when Brother Graham gives our talk at communion. And it says, and the angels would go on reading there in verse 11, and the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and before the throne on their faces, they fell on their faces before God and worshipped him and they were saying amen blessing and honour and wisdom and thanksgiving and uh, blessing and glory I should say and honour and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen so be it and one of the elders answered and he said unto me what are these that are raved in white robes and whence came they where did they come from And I said unto him, John's writing in his vision, Sir, thou knowest. He said unto me, These are they which come out of great tribulation. 
the people who have been in this world, that have gone back to the foundation of being born again, these are these. They've come out of great tribulation by washing their robes and made them white in the blood of Christ. They've been born again. And therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and they sit upon the throne and dwell, uh, he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them and they shall thirst no hunger no more nor thirst any more. Neither shall the light sun give light on them nor any heat. But the Lamb, for the Lamb, Jesus Christ the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and lead them under living fountains of waters and God will one day wipe away all the tears from their eyes. These are they that come out of great tribulation, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And just in finishing, I just want to quote a couple of verses from Psalm 31. But the psalmist says, in summary, I love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful and plentifully rewards the proud doer. Be of good courage, in verse 24, and be strengthened in your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. And all the people said.